Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're each going to be talking about a film that we've been watching recently. But before we get into all that cinematic stuff, what is going on? So Scott, October is fast approaching and I understand, as we discussed last episode, you're going to be doing the October Horror Movie Challenge. Yeah, so this episode is going out in October, but we're recording it ahead of time. So I haven't actually started the October Horror Movie Challenge yet at the time of recording. What I am doing, however, is watching a bunch of additional films, because when I sat down to make my shortlist for the month, I realised that there were so many horror films that had come out over the last year that I hadn't had a chance to see, that there were more than I was going to be able to fit into the month. So I'm writing a bunch of capsule reviews as well to put in the next blasphemous tome. Most of them actually so far have been a bit of a disappointment, but I have seen a couple of really good ones which I'd recommend if you're looking for choices for your own October viewing. There is a film called Moloch, which is a Dutch horror film. I think Matt might quite enjoy this one. It's a very sort of a cultish, folk horror type thing set in the Netherlands. It feels like a Call of Cthulhu scenario, really. It involves archaeology and digging up human sacrifices and ancient curses and stuff like that, and it's it's gothic as fuck. On the other end of the scale, there's VFW, which is sort of a love letter to the incredibly violent action films of the early 80s, things like Assault on Precinct 13 and The Warriors, both of which were late 70s now that I think about it, and Class of 84 and stuff like that. And yeah, if you want some blood-drenched, absolute bonkers violence, that is the film for you. Well, you've recommended Carpenter, so I'm definitely sold. (laughs) And you mentioned some reviews for The Blasphemous Tome, uh, our fanzine, which we bring out for our patrons, which is coming out. A new issue will be out in December 2022, issue 10. What else have we got in there? Well, we're going to do all of our usual year-end catch-ups, so talking about our favourite episodes of the year, talking about some of the games that we've been playing throughout 2022. Are you going to have time to do your normal discussions of your favourite limited edition RPGs and cocktails, Matt? I'm pretty sure. I've picked up a few books over the last couple of years that I think would be worthy additions to my limited edition collection, so I'll, I'll be able to find something. Nice. And we are also welcoming submissions from listeners. So if you have any short articles, up to 500 words or pieces of artwork that you think would fit into the tome and you'd like to see in print, then please do send them our way. You can email them to us at submissions at blasphemoustomes.com. And I'll put a link in the show notes if you just prefer to click. Now, taking place on the 14th to the 16th of October happening quite soon after this episode is released that's 2022 if you're listening in the future is miskatonic repository convention an online convention running all weekend yeah so you're doing a panel for that aren't you yeah myself and mike mason are doing a panel entitled getting creative with cthulhu 
intended to highlight ideas for doing new and exciting things on the repository. And that's on the Friday evening at 4pm Eastern Time, 9pm British Summer Time. And I'm also running a game for the convention on this Sunday. I think it's at 2pm BST, which is uh, Sound of the Sea, which is a scenario by Philip G. Orth. I haven't run it yet, but I've read through it, and it looks like the kind of thing I could have a bloody good time with. Yeah, and talking of conventions, I've been to three over the summer. Been a while since we last recorded, because... I was away over the summer. I went to Continuum in Leicester, which was uh, fun. And um, more recently to Owlbear and Wizard Staff in Leamington Spa. Big thanks to Matthew for organising that. And of course, Necronomicon, where I saw quite a few listeners. It was uh, good to catch up with people. Thanks to everybody who said hi. Also, whilst there, we played Pirate Borg. This is a Morkborg style game set with pirates. <laughs> <laughs> the clues in the name. It really is. Uh, myself and Mike Mason, Bridget Jeffries and Corey Welch were all players in the game run by Luke Stratton, the author. And it was live streamed on Twitch and is available on YouTube. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Luke ran a great game. And also, I'd like to say thanks to Holly for running a great game of Ten Candles with the Into the Darkness crew. So I got to play with them, Matt. Holly's an amazing GM. She ran Uncle Timothy's Will for us uh, a, a little while back, and that's one of the most fun romps I've had through a game in a long, long time. <laughs> Just ask <laughs> her about my universal lockpick and uh, see what she says. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds intriguing. And speaking of a convention I might actually be able to get to, yay, these things exist still. Concrete Cow is coming back round on Saturday, October the 15th. That's the usual venue, the Old Bath House in Wolverton on the north side of Milton Keynes. Yeah, this should hopefully be my first physical convention since my hospital stay, so I'm looking forward to this. The next Weekend with Good Friends is coming up fast. In fact, so fast that the preparations for it have already begun. Indeed, the GM sign-ups close in a couple of days from the release of this episode on the 13th of October 2022. Player sign-ups run 21st of October to the 27th of October. The results of who's playing in which game are announced on the 28th of October. And then the actual weekend with good friends runs 4th to 6th of November. So this, of course, is the online gaming convention organised by our lovely listeners over on the Good Friends Discord server. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes at blasphemousthomes.com. And now on to our main topic, films. Well, once again, we are discussing some of the films we've been watching recently. This is following the format that we started, oh gosh, a couple of years back now, isn't it? With the backer specials that we did. And it's kind of crept over into the main feed now. I'm going to kick us off with a discussion of a film that I've been meaning to watch for a little while. It's not a new film, but it's one that had gone under my radar for a very long time until uh, people on social media, particularly on our Discord server, had mentioned it, and I was intrigued. It's a film called Nothing But Trouble from 1991, and it's strange. It is really fucking strange. One of the strangest things about it is how it ever got made. 
because this was a blockbuster, or at least in terms of its budget. This cost $40 million to make back in 91, so in today's money, that is the best part of a $90 million budget. It was pitched as a horror comedy. It was the directorial debut of Dan Aykroyd, who wrote the screenplay based on the story by his brother Peter. And the story had been inspired by an incident Peter had had, where he'd been pulled over for speeding in rural Pennsylvania and taken to this weird courthouse, this small courthouse, where there was an extremely eccentric judge and it had all been handled very oddly. And then a producer friend of Dan Aykroyd's had mentioned at some stage in fact, apparently it was, I think, after they'd seen Hellraiser together, that Dan Aykroyd should try making a horror film. He'd obviously co-written and starred in Ghostbusters not long before then, and he'd he had a fairly lively career, not just as an actor, but as a screenwriter, with things like Spies Like Us and the Blues Brothers and countless skits for Saturday Night Live. But, you know, this was, like I say, his directorial debut. And he talked about, in interviews, some of the touchstones for this or some of the influences. And apparently one of the influences on this was the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which, as I'll get to in, in the discussion, you can sort of see. But at the same time, this is nothing like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The other main inspiration seems to have been the town of Centralia in Pennsylvania, which has turned up as inspiration for a number of horror films and games and so on. It was the inspiration for Silent Hill. And it's this town where there has been this coal fire burning underneath the town in the old coal mine since 1962. So the basic premise is that you had this group of Manhattanite yuppies. The two main leads in it are Chevy Chase, who is playing this financial publisher, and Demi Moore, who is playing this high-flying lawyer, who both live in the same apartment building in Manhattan. And they characters do have names, but I'm not really going to bother with that because they're barely playing characters. I mean, you're watching this film because it's Chevy Chase and Demi Moore, and they, they're pretty much, in terms of mannerisms and everything like that, playing Chevy Chase and Demi Moore. Moore's character has decided that she wants to go to this event in Atlantic City that's, oh gosh, something to do with some client of hers and some revelations that are going on there and he's he's doing some speech and so on. But none of this fucking matters at all. None of it does because they never get there and none of it really pays off. There's a lot of build-up and a lot of stuff that goes into building this premise, none of which is important at all. Chase really fancies Moore's character and decides that he's going to offer to drive her down to Atlantic City for this event. They have this discussion at the party and there are these two Brazilian millionaires, these siblings, who decide they want to tag along even though they're not invited to do so. They're referred to in the film as Brazilianaires and I guess that name's going to stick. So they all end up piling into the car the following day and driving down towards Atlantic City. Now, this is set in 1991, 
it was filmed obviously in 1991. Mm. And one thing that surprised me in this is that a big plot point in the film at least initially, is that the car has GPS in it. And it must have been like the first proto-GPS wow. devices really? that went into cars. Yeah. And this is obviously some fairly serious product placement from BMW because this is a brand new BMW that they've got that's got all sorts of features, including this, this GPS device. And <laughs> considering how much trouble the BMW ends up getting them into, I hope BMW didn't pay too much for this product placement because I don't think it really did them any favours and it certainly didn't do anything to change any prejudices people might have about BMW drivers. The Brazilianaires basically convince Chase to take uh, advantage of this GPS device to take the scenic route down to Atlantic City, which involves going through the countryside on the border between uh, New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And this takes him through this smoke-filled town called Vulcanvania. It is just this kind of really run-down little town that has cracked roads and, like I say, smoke coming up into it and looks really kind of like every backward stereotype you can imagine piled into one setting. They have a near car accident there, I mean, partly because they're gawping at the locals and partly because of all the smoke, and this attracts the attention of local law enforcement. And there is inevitably a car chase as the Brazilian airs egg chase onto, flooring his BMW and proving just how fast it can go and that he can outrun this police car because, of course, that's a good idea. But this is all curtailed because the police car has got this, this dashboard with all these switches on it that enable various weird things at some stage. And one of them is just a switch marked a detour. And as the police officer flicks that, this fake detour appears on the road ahead, shutting off the main road and detouring the BMW down this side road towards this quarry. And so basically they just end up going into the middle of nowhere and end up just stopped and detained by these police. One of which is the chief constable, played by John Candy, who actually seems to be a fairly decent police officer. He's got a very trigger-happy deputy who just seems to want to shoot everyone. But they end up taking them through this town, or rather through this junkyard, into this incredible rundown manner. And when I say junkyard, this isn't just a normal junkyard. I mean, this is on a massive scale, is absolutely filled with derelict uh, cars arranged in almost hinge-like patterns and Oh, that sculpture down in the uh, south of the States. Yeah. This one. Yeah. Yeah, Carhenge. Yeah. Yeah, we nearly went to visit it. I think it is in um, South Arizona somewhere. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is much, much larger than that. I mean, this is on a huge scale. You can see where a lot of the budget for this film went because this set is phenomenal. And in the middle of it all is this really creepy old wooden house, massive wooden house, that is derelict and rotten. And it does obviously then invite some comparisons with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, particularly once you get inside. And the interior of it is absolutely squalid and mouldy and filled with all sorts of odd items and curios just scattered all over the place. I've really felt quite at home looking at this. It 
ends up being home as well as to this weird old family to the local courtroom and the police are taking them to see the justice and the peace there who rejoices in the name of judge alvin jp valkenheiser who is this veteran of world war one played by dan Aykroyd in some incredibly grotesque and often quite silly prosthetics to give you some idea of how bizarre these prosthetics are his nose does look from some angles a bit like a, a flaccid penis and then at a couple of points you've got close-ups and you can see that there is actually a little sort of cleft in the center of it uh, like a urethra and it's just yeah it's just that kind of film and later on you also see that this genuinely is a prosthetic nose because he takes it off at some stage when he's going to bed and you just see these gaping skeletal navel cavities underneath but the judge arrives into the court by descending through the ceiling on ropes and the courtroom sort of comes to life by different things swiveling around and clicking into place and the whole thing is just very weird and again the courtroom is absolutely filled with clutter and half decaying and yeah you've got this this grotesque caricature of this ancient judge there presiding over the proceedings Hey, hey, ho, ha, ho! <laughs> hula, hula, hula! The bula, bula, bula! Look who's got the front seats of the Mexican hat dance now! Just like a bunch of spiders in a birthday cake! You might be interested to know that you are not under the jurisdiction of just any old fishing license dispenser and stamp pad jockey. We've always been set to deal with the offenders once and for all at their first appearance. Quick as sunk grease to a ten-year-old goose. He basically gets into an argument with Chevy Chase's character and he has them taken down to this sort of dungeon underneath the house. They're left there for some hours, during which another bunch of passes through the town are taken by the police. And these turn out to be drug dealers and they've got guns and they're clearly really bad people. Our protagonists down in the dungeon can hear all this, and the judge basically sentences them to death. But the form of death that he sentences them to is death by roller coaster. So there is this roller coaster which is connected to the side of the house called Mr. Bone Stripper. Right. They're pushed onto this conveyor belt, which then rolls them into these cars on the roller coaster, which then races off before they have a chance to get out. And then the roller coaster comes to a sudden halt. They come flying out and go into this hideous machinery that basically strips the flesh off their bones and the bones get ejected into this huge pile of, of human debris at the other end. But they're still going after this, are they? No, no, these aren't our heroes. These are the, oh, okay. you know, the drug dealers who were captured. Right, yeah. So this is sort of setting the stakes for later. Right, right. And so you get some idea that this is perhaps not a, a, a normal judicial system. Then our protagonists are invited to dinner with the judge. It's not quite the dinner scene from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but it is almost as grotesque in that they're served these kind of grayish hot dogs and all sorts of weird food, and the food is all going around on this model train set on the table, and again, everything is a bit weird, and it's all being served by 
the police chief's twin sister, who is also played by John Candy in drag, who is apparently mute and seems to fall in love with Chevy Chase's character. This aspect of the film has not aged well, not one bit. Well, I think uh, the fact that it's got John Candy on it has, has sold me already. <laughs> so yeah, I do, I do love John Candy. And it's also sounding a little bit, this scene sounding a little bit Rocky Horror Picture Show as well with the dinner with them serving up Eddie. Yeah, there certainly are echoes of this. But then it's difficult to sort of describe exactly how chaotic this is. But basically, our protagonists try escaping, but they end up trapped within the house and they learn that the house is one big series of death traps. They keep coming across human remains and things that are left behind by the people that the judge has obviously had killed in his house and newspaper clippings that are tied in with all sorts of strange disappearances. But this is all leading up to... Chevy Chase's character surviving in this this shotgun wedding that they're trying to arrange with the twin sister, which then gets really uncomfortable. But it, it's even more bizarre than that, because at some point, and again, they clearly thought this was a good idea, the police stop a few limos which contain the members of the band Digital Underground, this sort of funk hip-hop band that was around in the early 90s. And... The trial then turns into a musical scene. The judge has them perform a song as part of their defence. In the midst of all this, you have Tupac Shakur just rapping in the middle of it. This is basically their audition to see whether they can be the band for the wedding, as commutation of their, their sentence for whatever they were stopped for in the first place. But of course, this all goes to shit and there's, they all get split up and some of them are trapped within the junkyard there's this whole thing with these two kind of monstrous adult babies in diapers who are these torturers in the junkyard who end up trying to sacrifice Demi Moore's character because apparently they do human sacrifices and it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder and not necessarily in a good way. And there are all sorts of twists and revelations by the end, which I won't go into. But, you know, the whole thing ends up on this absolutely fucking bizarre note where you've had all these uncomfortable moments and so on. But the last scene on it is basically a sight gag that is lifted purely out of a Looney Tunes cartoon. And the tonal shift there is incredibly jarring. But, I mean, this is a film that is filled with these jarring, bizarre tonal shifts. And considering, like I say, the budget that it was made with, I kept finding myself wondering who the fuck this film was made for. I mean, they had some big stars in it, right? So they would draw people into the box office. Yeah, Chevy Chase apparently hated it, and you can see that in his performance. I mean, he's phoning it in all the way through. I mean, he's right. embarrassed to be there. But tonally, it is comedy horror, but it's like the evil twin of comedy horror in that most of the horror comes from the fact that the comedy, or at least the attempts at comedy, are really uncomfortable and they aren't funny. They just make you squirm. And a lot of the laughs come from the fact that the horror doesn't work and is just so ludicrous. And so it does sort of perversely end up being both horrific and funny, but not for the reasons I think they intended. So you, you've said it hasn't aged well and it's kind of, 
you know you're kind of more laughing at it than with it so would you recommend it then or not yeah i'm certainly glad i saw it it's an experience it is like no other film i have ever seen I've had arguments with people online before about the use of the word weird as pejorative. Well, I usually think of weird as being a good thing, as signalling a kind of imagination or strangeness that appeals to me. But I think this film, for the first time, made me understand how weird can be a pejorative. Because it is strange for all the wrong reasons. Again, I cannot emphasise enough my shock that this film got made. Because you clearly people saw the script and the you know the production design notes and so on, and thought, yes, this is worth putting forty million dollars into. Mm. I could understand if this were some low budget horror film that had been made at the time, because I mean, God knows the eighties are filled with any number of strange, uncomfortable films that were made for a shoestring. But this was a fucking blockbuster. It's absolutely inconceivable. Yes, uh, as I say, I'm very glad I saw it. And I think from a gaming point of view, there's all sorts of stuff you can steal in terms of characters and locations and just little strange bits and so on. And yeah, I'd, I'd definitely recommend watching it from that point of view. I have seen some genuinely terrible films like Battlefield Earth and Batman and Robin where I felt like every ounce of will and joy has been sapped out of my body by the experience of watching them. I did not get that feeling with nothing but trouble. It's not that kind of bad. But at the same time, it's not just a campy bad enough to be good thing. It, it is its own unique kind of bad that is absolutely watchable and compelling, but in no way good. Mm. But it is an experience. As you're describing it, there's a few things in there which struck chords with me thinking I've heard of similar things to this before. And I think there is a certain amount of gaming material that's already been maybe not drawn specifically in this film, but maybe parallel development that's come out, which was in Cult. Mm. I remember reading a long time ago about, this must be back in the days of first edition, where you've got the various incarnates of the Archons on Earth and their, their servants, the Lictors. I'm sure there's something about either a servant of Geberah or one of its incarnates that has this area in the, I think it's the southern US, so very much the Bible Belt territory, that whenever you go into that town, any small thing that you do is violently punished and it's outrageous the kind of the extent the law comes down on you as a result of even like mm. minor infractions. Like you put one step off the sidewalk, you lose a foot or you're uh, hung, drawn and quartered. It's ridiculous crime and punishment gone wrong which also i was thinking while you were talking about it thinking i know i've seen something like this before as well and it, finally I, having done a bit of digging around in my in my memory and online uh found there's an episode of tales from the crypt the hbo series from back in the late 80s early 90s called let the punishment fit the crime from season six which has according to imdb's description an unscrupulous ambulance chasing lawyer gets stuck in a strange town for moving violations and i remember that episode was sticking in my memory <laughs> and yeah again that has a very similar feel of the law gone crazy and being stuck that whatever you do it's just you're either digging the hole further down or you're putting yourself at the end of a rope. It's a really weird episode, but I remember it being quite a good one. 
Yeah, I'd say this is subtly different than that. There isn't this feeling of excessive punishment necessarily because you know, there were plenty of opportunities for the protagonists to get themselves out of this in the first place. A lot of the problems that they get into are out of their own making. But it's more capriciousness and weirdness. And what you're talking about there feels a lot more thematically consistent than this film is. This is an incredibly inconsistent film. And don't expect any aspect of it to make sense on a thematic or logical level. It just doesn't. Uh, pity. I'm again just off on a random tangent. When you mentioned Centralia, that was something that came up as a potential seed of inspiration for a, a scenario I was looking at a little while back. There was a video that I just stumbled on YouTube about weird things that had happened during the pandemic. And if I remember right, Centralia has a main road that goes into the town, like most towns in the US do. But the thing that had happened here is because there's no traffic going through the town because of the fire under, underneath and it causing structural problems with the infrastructure, people had gone out there and were doing lots of street art and graffiti on this long stretch of highway. But it had got to the point where it was getting so out of control that the local authorities went in and basically painted the whole road and basically wiped over all of the artwork that people had yeah. put, uh, put down on there. Just thinking, yeah, what, what were they trying to hide? What was the real <laughs> reason for them for trying to do this? What arcane sigil had been carved into that road for what purpose that the authorities had to step in and uh, cover this all over and literally whitewash the whole road? <laughs> What about you, Matt? Have you got something more wholesome for us? Well, I'm hoping so. <laughs> this is a film that, admittedly, I have seen before, but it was one that I hadn't seen for a long, long time. While I was uh, getting a little plug in here as well, while recently doing the layout for our most recent edition of The Blasphemous Tome, one of the processes that I have to sit through is waiting for, A, the file to save, because my machine is ancient and takes a long time to do anything properly or quickly, waiting for files to save, waiting for them to process and waiting for the file to convert into a PDF involves a whole load of sitting around waiting and doing nothing. So I had a look on Netflix and just randomly through the various genres of film went, eventually got myself down into the kind of the crime thriller section and stumbled across a movie post that I thought, oh yeah, I've seen that a long time ago and loaded up LA Confidential. I remember trying to read the book of this, the James Elroy novel, way back in the day and found his writing style to be quite a, uh, not a chore, but definitely it was a lot of effort to try and get through it. It was a weird style, one I hadn't encountered before, where he was very staccato and very mm. minimalist in his description. It's definitely worth it, but it was just a bit of a slog to get through. And I remember getting maybe a a quarter of the way through the book and for whatever reason I just didn't end up picking it up but I'm determined one day I'll go back because having looked at some of the surrounding discussion comparing the film to the book there is a lot more in the book than there is that made it into the film which mm. kind of comes up as an interesting thing for me as to how they approached the adaptation of this there's also a few different adaptations in terms of the story how it ends because uh, the book LA Confidential is the third part of the quartet that James Elroy wrote called the LA Quartet. In fact, the first LA Quartet is currently writing a second bunch of four novels. They have characters that tie between them, whereas this is very much a standalone entity. And it rolls around three policemen, all with very different personalities, goals, motives for doing what they do. They're played by, at the time, one big name, 
who is currently sunk so far under the uh, the level of desirability in Hollywood that we very much doubt we'll ever see him again, Kevin Spacey. Plus also Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce, who at the time weren't really known in Hollywood, or in North, in North America anyway, but obviously have risen following the success of this film, and deservedly so. I think they do a, a fantastic job. Matt, the headline on um, IMDb says it's three policemen, one straight-laced, one brutal, one sleazy. I just want to know which one Kevin Spacey plays. Oh, uh, he's he's the sleazy one. A fucking pipe car. <laughs> I'm going to say now, that guy, he always just gave me the creeps. Hmm. And I said this to people, but yeah. They should have listened. They should have listened. Why didn't they listen to me? <laughs> so there was a, uh, a classic Family Guy sketch as well, where Stewie runs out into a mall naked and says, help, 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 I've just escaped from Kevin Spacey's basement. <laughs> but again, was one of those uh, prophetic moments that suddenly you go, oh yeah, a bit too close to the nose there. But yeah, in, in this film, it was part of the commentary I was reading was that uh, Space was very much cast against type for this film, and yet plays the sleaze. <laughs> but yeah, he plays Detective Sergeant Jack Hollywood Jack Vincennes, uh, while Russell Crowe plays Detective Sergeant Wendell, okay, Bud White, and Guy Pierce, Detective Lieutenant Edmund Shotgun Ed Exley. Exley is very much the one that's trying to live up to his father's expectations. He died in the line of duty. He wants to be the pillar of virtue and is almost more of a politician than he is a detective. You've got Bud White. He has if you think of it in unknown armies terms, he has a constant rage passion active. He just absolutely hates anyone that does anything bad to a woman. You can see in one point his knuckles go grappling around the top of a wooden chair. The chair eventually snaps and he does the same, goes into an interrogation room, pulls a gun out, thrusts it into a guy's mouth and starts playing Russian roulette very quickly, turning the barrel and pointing and saying, give, give me an answer, click, click, click. Whereas uh, Spacey is described in again in the notes as... Someone that has lost their soul, that they've either been doing the job too long, they've kind of sold out, and generally he's he's a guy that's on a downward spiral and he's trying to do something to try and pull himself out of this. And, spoiler, doesn't work out for him. The film begins with quite a series of almost, not disjointed, but almost seemingly isolated events, which, when I was watching it and reading it to begin with, I didn't realise it was based on real historical events. I'd heard of Mickey Cohen, a famous or infamous LA mobster who was pulled up very much how they got uh, Al Capone on tax evasion. It's his disappearance from the LA crime scene that starts to cause ripples and people tr basically trying to fill the power vacuum that's left behind by him. And also an incident called Bloody Christmas, as it was christened in the news, where seven Mexicans, or uh, five Mexicans and two white guys, were pulled in for getting into an altercation with police. Rumours started spreading around the police force. Oh, yes, this guy is in hospital. Maybe he's uh, got a broken arm. Next guy says, oh, yeah, our mate's in hospital. He's got he's got losing his eye. Next guy says, oh, yeah, I'm one of our brothers in hospital. They're reading him his last rites. And it's just this Chinese whisper snowball effect of it growing out of proportion to a point where you've got a whole load of drunk policemen on Christmas night that decide to go down to the cells and get justice on their own terms and basically beat the shit out of these guys that were brought in from on charges of attacking the cops. Hey, Stan, you guys hear what those taco vendors did to Helenowski and Brown? Helenowski lost an eye and they're reading Brown his last rites. Well, that ought to make for a very Merry Christmas for Helenowski and Brown. Hey, guys. Guys. 
They brought the Mexicans in. They're downstairs. Do yeah, come on, guys, let's get him. Hey, Stensland, the party's upstairs. This doesn't con concern you. Come on, guys. Haven't you got work to do? Go back to the party. Hey, hey, come on, come on, it's Christmas. Help come me on, out, right? Come on, Ashley, out of the way. Move it! It's Christmas Eve. I just got a few more questions for the kids. Hey, jump off. I have to be down here. Guys. Go. Hey, wife, you better put a leash on your partner before he kills somebody. Teach him a lesson! I can't catch This is for ours, Poncho. <laughs> it's fictionalized in the novel and in the film, but was a real event that something very similar did happen to this, that there was this whole rumour mill that blowing out of escalation as it got passed from one person to the next that ultimately resulted in a, an assault on these seven suspects in the cells. And this is what starts the friction between the different characters. You've got Exley who decides, I'm the politician, I'm going to make the most out of this circumstance. I'm going to recommend that you kind of fire a whole load of people, you promote me as one of the only good people that's willing to testify against their brethren. You've got Bud, who's just had a friend of his thrown out, effectively the forcer as, as a result of this. And you've got Vincennes, who's been threatened with, oh, you can't do your work on this TV show that you act as a consultant for if you don't play ball. So there's already two of them that are loggerheads with this one other character. And it moves on a little bit. There's a few example almost like montages of things that happen around the whole mickey cohen vacuum people are trying to grab bits of his empire and uh, people trying to work out in the media that they there's a magazine they call hush hush which is based off the la gossip rag confidential which is where the, the title comes from which is saying like oh well, they, these people are potentially going to be like the former left hand and right hand of mickey cohen are they going to rise to take his vacuum insert them getting gunned down in a car by unknown assailants guess not and it's, it's quite tongue-in-cheek throughout this whole section. But upon watching it this time round, I noticed almost a throwaway scene which becomes quite important for setting up some of the narrative later, which I remember from the first time I'd watched it round, I thought, where the hell did this come from? I don't remember this being signposted at all. And it's where a couple of drug dealers are gunned down in their, in their home. And you see a hand of presumably one of the gunmen come forward and grab a case that's presumably full of drugs and then just disappears. And this becomes a plot point much later in the book and starts to explain why things are happening the way they're happening. Mm. And you've got then the find these three characters, which up until this point have been at loggerheads, been thrust together to work in a case called the Night Owl Massacre, where there's basically been a large gunfight or execution style gunfight at a uh, an all-night coffee shop in which a former cop one of the ones that got laid off as part of the bloody christmas incident has also been killed so the cops kind of rally around in this kind of we're going to get the person that's taken one of our own and they go on the hunt to try and find out who's done it and i won't go into got any more of the plot detail from there because a it gets pretty complicated but also that's mm. pretty much if you want to go in and watch the film that's all you need a setup that that's very much the point where things start getting really complex and really interesting from there on in i just found this fascinating when i went back and watched it that there's so many layers of detail it's boiled down to three essential plot lines in the book it's supposedly eight, and there's almost like twice as many characters that get involved in this. So it's a really complicated web from how it's being described. Mm. 
But the process that I read about when the, the scriptwriter and the director got together to adapt this was that they focused in on the three main characters. They went through the book and ripped out every scene that they were parts of and jettisoned everything else. Right. And said, so this is what we're focusing on the core film, which kind of reminded me a little bit about the adaptation for The Ninth Gate, which came out of the Demar Club, which is that's essentially a subplot of the main book. I mean, they drew in elements of the main plot from the Bar Club, but focused very much in on the subplot of the Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows story. And that's what then became the film. This just focuses on those three characters, almost jettisons everything else. There are some major antagonists that feature throughout the other plot lines, which then do cross with the main thing as this all starts to weave together and get braided together into a single plot thread and explains what's going on and brings it to a quite satisfying unified conclusion. But it was such an interesting structure to how it had been applied. Thinking of campaigns that we've played, normally mm. you find that there's just a single plot. You start, it kind of weaves around and maybe goes to different locations. You globe trot around the place, but it's ultimately the same story that you're following. Whereas mm. this was these three different threads, which eventually you saw, oh, it's crossing here and then it's crossing there. It's overlapping with other elements before finally realize that it is part of one massive whole just seeing from different angles. Right. And yet it just struck me as a really interesting way to construct a story, a very mm. complex and ultimately very fulfilling one for me. I had a whale of a time with it. I realised after maybe about half an hour to an hour in, because it's a fairly long film, mm. over two hours, I realised my PDF had finally done, but I just kept still watching the film. <laughs> There's a mark of quality. And not a single falling asleep once. Wow. Okay, now that's the real gauge. Mm. I remember watching this like, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago and really enjoying it, but I really can't remember much about it. And every now and again, I'm flicking through Netflix or whatever and I see it and I think I must watch that again sometime because I remember really enjoying it. Mm. Yeah, and like you say about the plot threads, I think sometimes going back to games, you know, sometimes I think there's too many threads and it's good to kind of strip it down. Because in a game, you're not seeing those faces on, you know, mm. you're certainly not seeing them on screen. You're not reading the names in a book where you can flick back and remind yourself who was who or anything like that. And I think sometimes there's too many threads going on. I think, you know, you can have a fairly simple couple of threads going on on your scenario, on your page. But once it gets interaction from the players, then everything kind of feels more complicated in general, I, I kind of find, even if you've got a fairly simple scenario. Yeah, I think it's further complicated if you're playing a campaign over a period of time. Then you've got those gaps between the sessions and people tend to forget stuff. And even if you've got notes and so on, then it's much harder than if you're watching a film or something like that to sort of think, oh, right, hang on, that NPC, we've heard that name before somewhere that's supposed to mean something. I haven't got a fucking clue. <laughs> Yeah, I've had this experience where a few uh, GMs have come to me and kind of lamented, head in their hands, shaking, like, we've been running, insert name of campaign here, and we got to a big reveal where I brought up a character name that's got one of the, revealing one of the big antagonists, and the players have gone, who? Mm. <laughs> and it's fallen flat like a lead balloon. It's had absolutely none of the impact that it was supposed to do, all because the players haven't, A, partly on their fault, they haven't made lots of notes, but also they haven't been paying attention, evidently didn't grasp all the groundwork that had been put in place up until this point, making this the reveal that it was supposed to be. Hmm. 
I'm not sure about blaming the players for that, because as I said, it does depend how you're playing the campaign. If you have got gaps of a week or weeks between sessions, then particularly if you're dealing with people of our kind of age, we don't remember stuff that well. The particular case I was thinking of, they very much seem to angle it at being kind of the player problem. That it was, why don't you remember this person that I've mentioned so many times before? Haven't you made any notes? Haven't you made any attempt to follow what's going on? And their response was kind of, meh, a shrug. It's funny, when I'm running a game, it's usually the players that are the problem. But when I'm playing one, it's usually the GM. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just found it was a nice, really refreshingly different and complex and well done storyline plus also you know me liking to bring in his historical events and kind of weaving in this these real world events to the point where you can't distinguish them from the fiction around them i thought was quite a nice touch Mm. even such an evocative period setting which again reading the development for the film they very much had at the forefront but they decided to put it straight in the background once they'd done all that that it's not overshadowed it's like if you're filming a film today in the modern day you'll obviously see that it's the world around you in that time period but you don't egregiously make reference to oh that's an iphone or that's this particular style car or this is the products that are on on display they're just there and that's very much how they took the approach to filming in 1950s la that they had all these details but they had them very much as part of the set dressing that they didn't make them a in your face on the screen all the time and in the way aspect of the film but it just adds to its realism its authenticity and its overall atmosphere right how about you then paul what have you been watching well we're going to leave the 1990s the last century one might say (laughs) and come forward to this year 2022 and Well, I watched three films this week in uh, preparation for this show. And the one that I think I'm going to say I enjoyed most was Men by Alex Garland, who made Ex Machina and Annihilation. At least one of those I've seen and enjoyed. And starring Jesse Buckley is the, the main actor. Now, I'd heard this was quite a strange film and it didn't disappoint in that respect. So it opens with her stood in her flat like a, I think a London flat, maybe looking out the window. This is all beautifully shot. Lots of beautiful color in this film and also great sound. There's a track playing um, love song by Leslie Duncan. It's kind of a folky singer songwriter kind of guitar song from 1970, which we come back to later a version by Elton John. And she's stood in her flat and It looks kind of normal, except she's got some blood around her nose and she's just looking forward. It's a very tranquil scene other than that. And then she kind of jumps and she's looking out of a window and she sees somebody falling past the window in slow motion, who we learn is her husband. And then we cut to her heading off into the countryside as this lovely kind of track plays in the background, a song about love and so on. And we learn that she's on a two-week retreat to sort of heal from the death of her husband and what we learn was quite an abusive relationship abusive and and manipulative relationship so she arrives at this country house somewhere along the m4 so i'm not quite sure where it was located but you know an english countryside village i don't think we need to say more than that 
and it's very lush and very green sort of late summer there's dandelions blowing in the wind and she gets this beautiful old country house and there's there's this bloke to show around jeff we're introduced to and he's almost comedic he reminds me of perhaps a character from the fast show mm. or this film has to start off with or as it progresses tones of hot fuzz where the police officer goes to again a kind of a, an english countryside village and everything kind of seems normal to start with but pretty quickly you realize it's not quite normal and there were one or two times when i did laugh at some of this older guy jeff's comments and so on it sort of sing to himself he seemed to be idiosyncratic and comical but at times a little sinister as well very subtly controlling he warns her at one point about the house and says you know ladies don't be flushing things down the toilet well only certain things or not certain things he says and it's like a kind of a weird thing to say because they're not they're not on main sewerage i think was the point she talks about how she'd eaten an apple out of the garden and he's like oh forbidden fruit now clearly this is uh garden of eden reference here but he he puts on a a kind of a fake telling her off but then he says oh it's just a joke and then he leaves and she's alone in this house and she decides to go for a walk she uh you know it's a beautiful place it's a beautiful day she walks she ends up walking along maybe this old railway line and there's a a massively long bridge i mean the places they found to shoot this are just fantastic it's a really long railway tunnel that they find and obviously so you can see light in the distance the end of the tunnel and she's she's singing and getting the echoes back and then she spots somebody at the other end of the tunnel who's running towards her and she just like turns and runs in terror after a while she finds herself in this field and she she rings her friend and we see i think over her shoulder there's just this guy just stood there looking at her in the distance but naked hmm. and she runs off he turns up a, a while later at her house and she rings the police and the police come and uh, apprehend this guy but it's all pretty creepy we don't really get a good view of this guy. Then she goes to the um, church and she's clearly very upset. She's, she's crying, you know, she's thinking about her late husband. And we see flashbacks to this husband who she wanted a divorce. And he says, if you divorce me, I'll kill myself. And then we get another flashback where she is in a dialogue with him in her flat and, and he hits her. So we're learning a lot about this guy and their relationship. So she meets the vicar, who looks a little familiar, even to me. <laughs> and there's a boy sat alongside the church as well, who again looks a little familiar. Yes, all these men in this village are played by the same person. So this is Rory Kinnear, the actor. He plays them all. And there's um, this boy in the, the graveyard is particularly kind of weird because he's got, I think, Rory Kinnear's face CGI'd onto him. But they're all kind of significantly different characters. And... So she sits with the vicar and uh, he, he talks to her and he seems sympathetic at first. I mean, indeed, he is kind of sympathetic and he sympathetically puts his hand on her, on her knee as he talks to her and she's not disturbed by this. He gets her talking about her husband and she confides in him about the relationship and he starts saying, well, yes, you know, men sometimes do hit women. That's just kind of a fact of life. I mean, she's quite rightly appalled by this and she storms off quite rightly 
So there's something unnerving about the men in this village. She, she goes to the pub and now we're like in deep because there's about six people in the pub. There's the barman. There's a couple of guys sat at a table. There's Jeff. The police officer comes in. They're all the same actor substantially made up to look differently but clearly all the same actor now and she talks to the police officer and she's like i'm glad you arrested that guy and he's like, oh yeah we had to let him go and she's like what you let him go the naked guy that was like stalking me and he's oh he's harmless enough <laughs> he's like what he's not harmless enough he's a naked stalker and he's like oh yeah but you know he didn't mean any harm did he and it's all fucking weird mm. But it's going to get a lot weirder. This is very folk horror. When she's in the church, she looks at the font, the stone font in the church, and there's an image of the green man on one side and Sheena Nagig on the other, the female pagan effigy on the other side. We get another cut back to her seeing her husband after he'd thrown himself out. She's gone out to look at the body and he's speared himself on some railings which have gone through his mid-forearm between the, is it fibula and tibia? Is the, 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 those are the ones in the leg. The bones in the forearm. Radius and ulna. Could be that, yeah. Both of you have more points in the medicine skill than I do. <laughs> and it's ripped. So if you imagine... The hole in the middle of your forearm ripping up to between your ring finger and uh, middle finger, cutting all the way through. So it's kind of, you've almost like, almost like a gug. You've got two forearms. <laughs> and that's a pretty horrific image. Cut to a little bit later. She's alone at home now. Things are escalating. A guy is trying to break into her house. I think it's like the naked guy or something like that. What are you doing here? Does it come back? Why aren't you replying? got his arm through the letterbox and she's got a knife and she stabs him through the forearm and Ooh. didn't click immediately but you know you kind of it's pretty obvious when you think about it we're getting the same wound repeated here and a brilliant scene where he's got his arm right through the uh, up, up to the elbow almost through the letterbox and she stabs him through the forearm and he just slowly pulls his arm back and the knife Ooh. is fixed against the door blade facing towards her slowly cutting oh. through his arm to the wrist and then through the wrist bones and out between those two middle fingers ouch i want to see a letterbox that you can actually get an arm through because that is not a normal letterbox for over here it's an old house i think it's got quite a big letterbox and then you know he breaks into the house and she's trying to fend him off with a knife it's all kind of weird up till then Oh, that's right. And then she breaks out and she, she drives away. But then she, there's Jeff stood in the lane and she knocked him down and he gets back up and it chases after her. And anyway, they're, they're in the house. But then um, I can't remember if she manages to kill one of them. 
or he just appears, I think, as the maybe the green man. The green man now, this this naked guy has been, <laughs> the naked stalker has been sticking like leaves under his skin and he's now turning into the green man. The, the leaves are sprouting on his face and his face is all green and he's getting big, big and pregnant. <laughs> and now if listeners will remember, we talked with Dirk the Dice about a film called Gozu. Yeah. Well, this is Gozu Plus. <laughs> so you've had the, you've had your wicker man meets hot fuzz now you've got some gozu because uh the green man he giving birth and he gives birth to like one of the other guys that we've met who follows her around the house and then falls down and they're just endlessly giving birth to each other so they're all like Rory Kinnears coming out of those different characters. It will be the, the boy, it will be Jeff. And each one has got this same wounded forearm. So it's clear, you know, is the same person or mm. is it indeed her husband? And, you know, they're chasing around the house and it's just bonkers and very graphic and disturbing as these birthing scenes take place, which I will say, you know, I think I took inspiration from Gozu for that scene in... Um, the Oklahoma chapter in Two-Headed Serpent, the pulp campaign. And then eventually, the last figure that's birthed is her husband, James, who isn't the same actor. This is a different oh, right. person. So there are like two male actors in the film. There's her husband and there's Rory Kinnear who plays all the other the characters. So the husband, James, is sat on the sofa with her and, and she just comes and sits with him. And um, after a minute or two of sort of looking at each other and sort of, I think, I think it, they have a couple of exchanges. She says, what is it you want from me? And he looks at her and says, your love. And mm. she's like, yeah. And it cuts to her sat out in the garden of this house, as sunshine and her friend has just arrived who she called on the mobile earlier and just rushed over from London. And she looks across the garden and just breaks into a smile as Elton John's love song just starts playing and cut <laughs> black indeed. And it's like she's reached some point of realisation or happiness. Now, I don't know any interpretation I put on any of this is strictly like an interpretation because one can make readings of it. I don't think there's any obvious reading that jumped out at me. I, I watched this with Lucy. She said, uh, is it a horror film? And I'm like, yeah. Sometimes she doesn't like horror films, but she seems to like folk horror films and uh, enjoyed this one. I kind of thought she would enjoy it. Mm. It also reminded me, you know, talking of other references, it also reminded me a little of Antichrist, uh, the Lars von Trier film. Oh, wow. Because in that, I think we get that same kind of closure at the end of all the women turning up and a kind of a mm. kind of an emotional closure at the end of that, a kind of healing closure, I think. I feel we get the same in this. I'm not quite sure how. It seems like it's saying... Her husband was manipulative and abusive and he just wanted everything from her. He wanted her love, as he says in that last line. He doesn't say, I want you to be happy or, mm. you know, I want, or, or what do you want? He just says, I want your love. It's like, I want to possess you, I want to possess your love. And the film is called Men. Make of that mm. what you will. I did see the trailer for this a while back, and when you were talking about this being your choice for this episode, I did wonder how you were going to cope with it with your face blindness. Well, I think 
I'd already knew about that. I already knew that he played different people, um, different characters. I hadn't told Lucy this because I just wanted to see how quickly she had realised and she picked up fairly quickly. I mean, I think Rory Kinnear, the actor, is fairly... He wasn't somebody I particularly know well from other films, but he's got a fairly characteristic face. Mm -hmm. Just the proportions of his face are, are quite recognisable. And when he plays Jeff, the first guy that we see played by him, he's got these teeth in, like these prosthetic teeth. And Lucy's like, what's up with his teeth? <laughs> are kind of <laughs> quite comical. And they give him, they affect his speech a little bit as well. So when he plays the vicar... Somehow he had kind of had an air of David Williams about him. Mm. Not the and a little bit of that look to my eye, but it was pretty clear that, you know, it was the same guy. Mm. It seems to me like they maybe missed a trick. They didn't get John Malkovich in for this role. Well, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or Peter Sellers, but he's a bit busy being <laughs> dead. <laughs> yeah, your friendly neighbourhood necromancer. He's uh, never around when you want him. I could have called it being Rory Kinnear. Indeed, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, if you're into the kind of films that we talk about, I think you should watch this. It's a new film. It's beautifully made. Great soundtrack. Great acting. Moments of very, very dark comedy. And some very out there body horror. Folk horror meets body horror. So uh, what more can I say? I mean, if people have a, an interesting interpretation of it of their own, I would be very interested to hear because uh, you certainly get more than your share of what the fuck moments and uh, I always like one of those in a film. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new backers to thank by name. Yep. Okay. So from the top, I'm going to say if we mispronounce any of these names, then please do let us know and we'll give it a shot in a future episode. So I'm going to kick things off with a big thanks to Sergio Zasiu. And joining us at the indescribable IOD level, uh, we say thank you very much to Lee Heng Sun. And thank you very much to Being Sky. And thanks to Alex Shercliffe. And thank you very much also to Hilmar Emstrand. And thank you to Cody Johnson. And thanks to Sam and Olivia Sava. And thank you very much to Bjorn Oren. And thank you very much to Joachim Molen. And at the boogieing zoog level, <laughs> thanks to Deanna Brown. The best kind of zoog. Indeed. And also thank you very much to Jared Tallis. Aha. Uh -huh. And thank you very much to Jeremy Abernathy, who I played a very, very entertaining game of Cthulhu Dark Green with recently. And thanks to David Sansom. And thank you also to the singular Jack Gravy. And finally, thank you to Greg Collins. 
And if you are enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you let people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere online where, well, people might find it, or just letting people know on social media posts or in casual conversation, or, I don't know, by just manifesting your face over someone else's in some English village and letting them know that way. We'll take what we can get. Okay, well, you've been listening to the good friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. And cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.